It's the Andy Thompson Show on ESPN 97.7. The Sport Hole. Butch, 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 butch. Garoppolo. Javante, he's picked off. Intercepted by the Lions. And Kirby Joseph. All right, Larry, we've got Jeremy doing the questions, right? Yes. All right, go ahead, Jeremy. What do you got? All right, Sporty. Yeah. Do you feel bad for Devontae Adams and the Raiders? Um, I never feel bad for a diva wide receiver, but I kind of feel bad for Devontae because his whole vision of his future and leaving Green Bay and his... His quarterback is one of the best quarterbacks of his generation to go play for his buddy was thrown out the window. Now, my number one thought about the Raiders is this. It is a lesson that we've learned a hundred times. Let's look at Josh McDaniels. An offensive play caller is vulnerable to developing a God complex. Josh McDaniels, who orchestrated the best offense in the history of the NFL. In 2007, he's he's the puppet master, the offensive play caller for Brady and Moss, and they're scoring 50 points a game, and Brady has 50 touchdowns, and they go 60-0. and 0. He's the offensive coordinator for six Super Bowls with the Patriots, right? And when you're an offensive coordinator and you're up there in your box and you got your headphones on and you edict down to the cogs down on the field and they execute exactly what you tell them to do and it works, it's easy to think that I am the master here and I can do this with any bags of meat that I can find, right? No matter what players I have or the team I have, I am the genius. I'm the mastermind. I called this amazing play. It worked. And I'm the one who drive the play and came up with it to call it. So McDaniels thought of as the quarterback coach, the offensive genius in the 2000s, gets a job in Denver. He finally leaves the bosom of Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, goes to Denver. He's got a guy there. He's got Jay Cutler, who is a talented, arm-talented, top-five-yards-wise passer the year before McDaniels gets there. Jake Cutler's slinging the ball all, all around the yard, but he's not disciplined. He throws a lot of picks, and McDaniels instantly says, this guy ain't my kind of guy. I got to force his butt out of here so I can bring in a programmable quarterback, somebody like Brady who's limited physically and will have to lean on my brilliance to tell him what to do in my system. So he gets rid of Jay Cutler, brings forces him out, brings in Kyle Orton, who is a perfect kind of McDaniels type of quarterback who is programmable. He's terrible. He has to bring in the backup. That's Tim Tebow. They win a playoff game with a lot of nonsense and crazy stuff that happens. Gets Tebow out of there. And the next year he starts 3-9 and nine and he's canned. He wanders through the desert for a while, then goes back into the bosom of Belichick. And surprise, surprise, what happens? He becomes a genius again with Brady. He wins a couple more Super Bowls, all this stuff. Does he learn his lesson from the first time when he gets another chance at a head coaching job? No. He does the exact same thing again. He goes to the Raiders. The Raiders already have a quarterback, a talented quarterback. He's got arm talent. The year before, 
Um, McDaniels gets there. Derek Carr is a top five passer in the league, has a career year. Unbelievable season. What does McDaniels do? I got to get this guy the heck out of here. I need to bring in somebody who's programmable because I am the puppet master. I'm going to bring in Jimmy FG and we're going to program him and that's how we're going to win games. How does that how does that look now? Horrible. Jimmy G having a, a rough season and the Raiders aren't good enough to succeed with a quarterback like that. It's not like the 49ers roster and Josh McDaniels is an idiot. One, because he didn't learn his, his lesson the first time with quarterbacks. Two, for taking a job without somebody there. When you've coached the greatest of all time, like many coaches have, once the greatest of all time retires, you don't come back until you have somebody else. Phil Jackson loses Jordan. He instantly picks up Kobe and Shaq. Even Sean Payton, who coached Breeze during the glory years, didn't come back at least until he thought there was a warm position with a quarterback who was reliable and good and had a Super Bowl pedigree. Now, that hasn't worked out great in Denver. It's been a mess, and they've been a disaster. But at least his decision-making was rational to think, I'm not coming back. Everybody wants me to come coach. I'm not coming back until I have a proven entity at quarterback. If you look at Urban Meyer, Urban has Tebow for all those years. As soon as Tebow leaves, he leaves. He doesn't come back until Ohio State has a bona fide stable of quarterbacks in Braxton Miller and JT Barrett and all of those guys after that. He didn't take any job. He didn't take the Notre Dame job. He didn't fall for anything. He knew he's smart enough to realize The quarterback is the most important thing. Belichick is obviously learning that lesson this year as well. Other guys like Doc Rivers, who jumped from Garnett, he jumped to CP3 and Blake Griffin in their glory days, and then he jumps to Embiid. And the guys that don't amaze me. The guys that leave a job or lose out on a player and then jump to another job without a branch to cling on, right? That's what McDaniels did with the Raiders. That's what Quinn Snyder did going to Atlanta. He he wants to get away from the Jazz, and then he takes a job with the Hawks and Trey Young. He's got no branch to cling to. He's going to be fired in the next, you know, 18 months with Atlanta. So that's the lesson, and it's doubly offensive for McDaniels because it's the exact same cycle that he did the first time. How do you not learn your lesson? He'll be out. People are calling for his job. FireJoshMcDaniels.com. They're beating down Mark Davis's door to can this guy. Another tough, semi-embarrassing performance against a good Lions team last night. So I do feel bad for Devontae Adams because it looked bright when he had his guy and then McDaniels got rid of him. So yes, I do feel bad for the Diva wide receiver who has been considered the best receiver in the NFL four or five years in a row until the last year and a half or so, right? All right, Larry. Great question. By the way, good job to Jeremy there, buddy. Oh, we got the polygraph presser. Let's do it. The Sport Hall. Butch, 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 butch. Okay, we sent Lawrence, the pigskin-picking robot, out to Blanding, Utah, San Juan High School. And, Larry, it looks like we were only able to get Coach Satake and Coach Whittingham, right? Yes. Coach Anderson had a bye 
um, and Coach Peterson and Coach Fitz weren't able to make it up. Is that right? Yes. So you had to face down these two coaches who both had embarrassing losses. 35-6, both of them lost. Let's start with Coach Satake. The bit here is that they're wearing a... uh, They're doing a lie detector test, right, Larry? They've got a polygraph suit on. Yes. All right, let's start with uh, Coach Kalani Satake. When you're ready, Larry. It's time for the polygraph presser. Coach Satake, how do you feel about the game on Saturday? They're all well-coached teams. Um... And then with tons of talent. Remember, Coach, you're on the polygraph. Try again, please. Look, Slovis is playing like Mangum after he fooled everybody with those Hail Marys. If we were independent, we'd be losing to Liberty and Wagner with this kid. We paid him more than I got paid my first five years here as the head coach. Our offensive line cares more about how many twicks they're going to get tonight, trick-or-treating, than what our yards per carry is. Sarkeesian lucked out getting the heck out of here. I'd kill to be his defensive coordinator next season. Sark, Kalani.Satake at BYU.WorldIsOurCampus.edu, buddy. West Virginia sucks. Hammer the Cougs plus 10 in Morgantown. So still positive there at the end about playing West Virginia, even though they're 10-point dogs. Last I saw Larry Morgantown, tough place to play with all those rednecks. And they're good, having a good year, overachieving this season. Had that devastating loss to Houston with the Hail Mary a couple couple weeks ago. I ain't going to make my pick yet. We'll wait till Friday, but I'm feeling good about the Cougs. All right, Larry, let's do Coach Whittingham. Tough loss to Oregon. Go ahead. Coach Whittingham, how do you feel about the game on Saturday? Our culture is, hey, you know, whatever it takes to win, it doesn't matter. Some weeks it's going to be, uh, you know, more reliant on one face than the other. Remember, Coach, you're on the polygraph. Try again, please. Look, it was a great weekend for the program. What do you want from me? Game day, McAvee, Pig Farmer. Andy Ludwig coaches scared. We've learned that by now. I knew we were going to lose by a million. That's why I milked all the publicity while I could. Our defense sucks. Are you sure you want to push me out so Scally can take over? Arizona State sucks. Hammer the Utes, minus 11 in Tempe. Positive as well. Now, there's rumors that Brandon Rose might get a shot on Saturday against Arizona State. Arizona State's no good. And if you look at Utah, the rest of Utah's schedule and the possibility now, talk about delusional, that Utah can win out and beat Washington, the chances of that are like 3%. But, by the way, Utah's at home, Coach. It's not in Tempe. They're in Salt Lake. So Arizona State comes to Utah. We'll have tickets to that game, by the way, on your home for the Utes in Southern Utah, ESPN 97.7. But then Utah goes to uh, Washington on the 11th, and then they go to Arizona, who all of a sudden is kind of a scary team, even though going to Tucson is never scary, kind of becomes so. And then you finish the season home against Colorado not scary. So you're going to be favored in three of those four games and I would just like to see a little Brandon Rose this game against against the Sun Devils just to see what you got. Just to see if he's a quarterback. Because the pig farmer 
in Washington is going to have another five completion performance like he did against Oregon State, right? We'd love him, but he's not going into Washington and going to get you a win. If your goal is to win out and put yourself in a position to go play in the Pac-12 championship for the third year in a row, what you're hoping for is that you win out, that Oregon wins out, and that somehow USC beats Washington. Those are the three things you need to happen. The one thing you can control is somehow beating Washington. Washington has looked beatable a couple of different weird times in the Pac-12 playing close games. They beat Oregon, who just smoked you. So it does seem, you know, Penix and those two receivers, three maybe NFL receivers on that offense are remarkable. So very scary to think about that game. I guess my goal this week with Arizona State, if I'm a Utah fan, is give Rose like several series and just keep him in there if he's a quarterback because you don't believe Nate Johnson's a quarterback and you know what you got in the pig farmer. Rose was the guy everybody was saying was going to be the the backup to Rising. Rising was a starter in Florida, which we always thought was a possibility because we were idiots and we believed what they told us. Brandon Rose was supposed to be the second guy, so maybe he's better than these other two guys. Let him play. What do you got to lose? You could beat Arizona State with your eyes closed. Don't want to jinx it. Don't want to jinx it. All right. Great job, Larry. I know it's hard to go up to Blanding and San Juan High on a cold Tuesday morning and ask tough questions, but we appreciate why you do it, and that's why we give you the Daylight Donuts gift certificates every week. Next topic. What do you got? The Sport Hall. Sports, 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 sports. Mark it in. Lob it up top. Beautifully done. That's the best play of the night. Mm-hmm. What's your take on the Jazz loss last night, Sport Hole? Not a bad loss. Jazz looked good. They rebound awesome. Won the second half. Denver's such a, a cool team because they have kind of a comp. They have an old school. Everybody has a duo, right? We went from the super teams. Everybody had a big three or big three and a half to kind of the duo era of the NBA, which is kind of like the 90s where every good team has two stars. And what's cool about Denver is they're totally complementary with Jamal Murray and Jokic, where Jokic is deferential. He's a great passer from the high post. He's a playmaker from the perimeter. And Murray and him work so well together. And Murray's not a ball stopper and he's not a hog. So uh, there's a reason why they're the best team in the NBA and won the title. And it's fun to watch a complementary duo, whereas a lot of duos like Booker and Durant are just kind of the same skill set. They can do the same thing, and they just pass it to one side of the court to Booker, and he goes ISO on that half, or they throw it to the other side of the court with Durant, and he goes ISO, right? There's no comp- there's no complementary nature with that duo. If you look at the Clippers, they now have four guys that do the same crap in playoff P and Kawhi and Westbrook and Harden now. What a bleeping nightmare, Larry. Can you imagine? Have we not learned our lesson about the uh, Nets experiment where you put three prima donna ball hog losers who have never won anything on the same team? Now you're going to put four. I guess Kawhi's won something, but the other three have won Jack, and it's going to be a very fun nightmare to watch. Denver is so refreshing for the reasons I said. Now, um, Milwaukee, I wouldn't necessarily say Giannis and Dame are complimentary, but they might be able to figure something out 
and Dame is going to have a refreshing chance to win at a high level in the East and win the East. But Tatum and Jalen Brown, they're not complimentary. They're kind of like what Durant and Booker do, where it's just split the court in half and kind of do iso ball. So enjoy watching the Nuggets, I guess is my point. My, my, my other point about the Jazz is the roleless team factor that they had last year, which was so fun for the first half of the season, especially like the first three weeks of the season because it was such a shock with how well they were doing and nobody had a role and there were no expectations and role players and misfits from other teams who had been cast off to this tank team in Utah were now able to spread their wings and actually play like basketball players again and not have some stipulation or regulation on what they were able to do. You're only going to play X amount of minutes and we don't, you know, you're, you're, if you shoot more than five times, that's bad or whatever. That was awesome. And that was a hard team to kind of play against because who the heck knew what was going to happen or is marketing or who's going to have the big game or Clarkson Olenek and the Jazz and it's inevitable but they're becoming a Larry Markkinen's team and when people say okay Markkinen you're the all-star we got to get you 25 shots a game it's great he's playing great and he is great he had another great game in Denver had a great game against the Suns as well it just isn't um, – it's not as fluid as it was last year, especially at the beginning of the season. You look at the first four games last year versus the first four games this year, they have less team assists, their field goal percentage is down, um, their three-point shots are down. Everything's Everything good is kind of down a little bit. If you look at specific players like Markkinen, his assists are down. His three-point attempts are up. That's fine. He's shooting the lights out in the first four games. He's making, like, what, four or five threes a game, Larry? Yes. On a pretty good percentage. You look at Kelly Olynyk. I know this is a function of John Collins being here, but all of his good stuff down, all of his bad stuff kind of up compared to last year for the first few games if you're looking apples to apples on a four-game uh, stretch. So I guess my point is it would be awesome if they could, until they become a true, there's, you know, over under 33 games this year. People think they can be a playoff team. Fine. Is that the goal? I don't know. But until you get your third star, if you think Markin your star and Keontae can be a star in the next year or two, and then you have enough assets to bring in or trade for that third star. That's the goal of Danny Ainge and Ryan Smith is to have three star-level players on the team. That's Ainge's whole thing, right? The big three. You don't have that now, so why not allow this team to exist and flow in a way that's not, okay, we've got to get Lowry... 25 shots. We've got to get Clarkson 12 shots a game and seven threes or whatever. And you are a role player and you, you know, Olenek, you're not allowed to do this. And that kind of stifles, I think, some of the natural fun of a season, especially when you shouldn't have high expectations. And that's kind of what we're seeing through four games. Even though you look at the Jazz, they played four of the best teams in the league, right? Sacramento, the Suns, um, last night with Denver and the Clippers. And so they're 1-3, they're but they're probably expected to be 0-4 at this point. Anything else on the Jazz, Larry, that you had? Oh, we were going to go through comments, fan comments, right? 
Yes. Okay, does Jeremy have those? And I'll just kind of react to them. Before we do that, though, let me just say one thing about Keontae George. I understand wanting to bring him along slowly, especially at that position, right? Because it's so crucial, kind of. In this NBA, it really doesn't matter, in my opinion. But I understand pulling him when he makes a hustle error. Like in the fourth quarter last night, he shoots a three, misses, chases the rebound instead of getting back. And Denver, kind of when the game was close, gets an easy transition bucket and Hardy pulls him. I don't know that that's a hustle play. I think that's a mistake. That's an immaturity play. That's a that's a teachable moment. Maybe that's why you pull him off and you talk to him and stuff and you hammer him a little bit. But Keontae will get more and more minutes as the season goes on, especially with an underperforming guard line. Chris Dunn's been great on defense, but offensively in the flow of the half-court offense hasn't been great, and the number one weak part in the chain has been the, uh, the point guards. All right. Let's go to some uh, jazz comments. Jeremy, you can go ahead and fire those off. I'll just give you kind of a quick reaction to some of them. What do you got, buddy? THT made some big shots. That keynote can't. That keynote can't. So uh, so far off to a, a fantastic start, Jeremy. And he pushes the ball. Yeah. I don't understand the THT hate. So there are a big fact, a big... Um, function of THT guys who love him more than anything. I think Burnside Rustin isn't in that camp, but that's probably, you know, 40% of Jazz fans. Go ahead. The officiating down the stretch was frustrating in the eyes of this Jazz fan. But apart from that, I'm much more encouraged with our performance tonight. I agree with that. Who cares about the officials? But I I agree with the encouraging performance. I think there's a lot of... I think that's what Will Hardy said in the postgame, too was a lot of silver lining stuff in this loss to the Nuggets. It's a tremendous improvement over Saturday's effort in Phoenix. Yeah. Brutal schedule to start the season. Yep. I Let's agree. Let's up a little over the next few games. True. I've been bad-mouthing THT, but he was good tonight. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. JC was terrible. We have a good team, and we beat a healthy Clippers team. Our 1-3 record does not show the level of this team. Ultimately, they're 1-3 and, and not on a good trajectory. Mm. One of the point guards needs DNP coach's decision because playing all four is stupid. And that's, an, I mean, that'll happen. This is like college basketball kind of preseason, pre-conference schedule, in my opinion, right? They're going to get Keontae more minutes and all these people panicking. Um, it's understandable because he's so good. I mean, when he's on the floor... Um, I thought he was good on defense. I thought he was staying in front of Jamal Murray when he was on Jamal Murray, which is hard to do, especially for a kid. And I just feel like his presence on the floor is really good, and he's fast and looks like he belongs, and he's confident and all that stuff. So looking forward to seeing him develop, Larry. Good job on the Jazzosphere comments, by the way. Uh, Jeremy, we'll try to do that uh after most jazz games here in the sport hall. All right, next topic, my friend. What do we got? The sport hall. Butch, 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 butch. Two-minute drill presented by Ideal Home and Auto Paint. To the five, to the two, diving, touchdown! How can Desert Hills beat Crimson Cliffs? Mm. Um, 
I don't know how to answer that question. But let me say this. Desert Hills has, obviously, a very special running back. They have a bunch of dudes up front. I mean, you look at what Titan Mason just did to Snow Canyon. We talked about it yesterday, I know. But in two games this year, he goes for almost 600 total yards, if you count his catches out of the backfield. That's six touchdowns in the playoffs against him. Four in the regular season. And it's just giving him the ball and letting Taffa and Bridger and those guys go to work up front. That's a physical front. So they do have that. And if they can slow the game down and have some movement up front, then they can compete with with Crimson Cliffs, hopefully. If you're a Region 9 fan, you want to see a close game, hopefully they can accomplish that. The problem is... In the regular season, they weren't able to do that. That was such a weird game for Desert Hills in the rematch of the state championship where I thought they came out a little flat-footed. They got punched in the mouth, and Tight Mason had 1.8 yards per carry. He had 13 carries for 23 yards, like completely taken out of the, just completely shut down by that Crimson Cliffs defense. Is Crimson Cliffs defense that much physically better then Desert Hills' offense, well, the the scores say maybe they're beating everybody by, by 45 points. They just beat Cedar 56 to nothing. So maybe they are just that physically better than every team, maybe in 4A. But when you look at Desert Hills and the talent and the toughness and the physicality of that front mixed with the best running back in the state in, Tyson, in Titan Mason, you think, can't they get something going on the ground? And then you've got Garrett Grondel, who's who's starting in the playoffs. He didn't start in their game in the regular season. Maybe that gives you something. He just ran for 100 yards against Snow Canyon. So maybe he gives your run game, makes it a little bit more dynamic. Although Bull Wall's an athlete, he can run too, and they couldn't do anything against Crimson. But at least it's something different that Crimson Cliffs hasn't seen this year in Grondel. So that's your one chance. And if you look at Crimson Cliffs, there's only been two teams that were able to run the football on them. Bingham's main back, the uh, Brimhall kid, ran for 140-something yards on six yards a carry. And then Springville, Tavita Valetti, who's one of the best running backs in the state, was able to run for 165 yards on 5.3 yards per carry. Titan Mason is... Our version of those guys down here in Southern Utah, he needs to be able to get some push from his linemen, and he's got to be able to get a little bit. Definitely more than they have in the regular season if they're going to compete with Crimson Cliffs. Now, they're big underdogs in this game. I looked at Perry's power guide. Did he have it at 25 or something, Lawrence? I can't remember off the top of my head. We'll have to look that up. But that's kind of what it's been. Crimson Cliffs, 30-point favorites against Desert Hills. But that's got to be your recipe. That's got to be your recipe if you're Desert Hills. And I know it's like the most basic thing ever. Run the ball against a team that's impossible to run it against. But that's your identity if you're Desert Hills. And you've just got to figure out a way to get a little daylight in there for them. Um, And then you got the kitchen sink factor. When the playoffs, look, we saw Hurricane do it against Desert Hills in the first round of the playoffs where they just kitchen synced them every play. Every play was some weird reverse throwback, getting these guys, getting a play in front of the defense that they've never seen before on film, 
there's going to be some of that, I'm sure, by Desert Hills as well. I think it's going to be a much... I think it's going to be a closer game in the playoffs than it was the regular season. But you've got to you got to let Titan eat a little bit, and it's hard to eat against these boys. Crimson Cliffs. Wow. Um, anything else? Oh, uh, the Orem comp. So we talk about how Crimson Cliffs is the best team if they go on and win the national or the national championship. They go on and win the state title and dominate all the way through. They've got the most dominating team that I've seen since I've been down here and maybe the whole decade. And then people said, well, can we compare them to the to the Orem team that had Puka, Noah Sewell, and Cooper Lega on those guys? And the answer is kind of to this point. Orem's only two losses were to Bishop Gorman, and they lost to Bingham when Bingham was even better than they are now. And then they went on and won in the playoffs, Larry, by... What were the score total? 68-12 over Tooele, 56-point differential. 58-28 over Mountain Crest, 30-point differential. 62-20 over Pineview, 42-point differential. And 60-13 over Dixie in the championship game, that's 47 points. Now, they're putting up 60s and giving up a little bit more points. Crimson Cliffs doesn't give up points. They might not score in the 60s, but they don't give up points. And Orm gave up some points. So, I think it's a comp. And I'm, uh, I think it's, you know, fair, especially if they go on to win the title. And especially if they dominate in the title like Orm did. I'm fine doing that. Um, anything else on that, Larry? All right, next topic. Overrated clap, clap, clap. Mm-hmm. Who is your top four in the college football playoff? College football playoff committee is releasing. They're coming down from the mount and releasing who the best four teams in the country are. And we just slurp this crap up. It's going on right now. It's starting in 20 minutes. I don't care who theirs is. Here's who mine is. Mine is about the actual resume on the field prioritizing who you've beaten. What have you actually done on the field? Not what was your preconception of how good you would be based on the preseason rankings or what Phil Steele said about you or how many five stars you have. What have you done on the field and who have you beat, Larry, on the field resume? It's important. you agree? Yes. My number one team is Florida State. Florida State put their necks on the line and beat LSU first game of the season. They beat Duke. They beat Clemson. I know Clemson's down, but their strength of schedule's okay, and they beat a team like LSU. Gutsy scheduling, all that stuff, and they're undefeated. Number two, Washington. Sue me. Beat Oregon. One of the most impressive wins of the year in college football was Washington beating Oregon, a a game they could have easily lost, but they hung on and won, and Penix is one of the best players, and they've got one of the best, a couple of the best receivers in the country as well. So I'm going Washington number two, Larry. Number three, Ohio State beat Notre Dame. Notre Dame's a two-loss team. You know, they struggle. Ohio State struggled a little bit against Wisconsin. The Big Ten sucks. 
Uh, they beat Penn State. Penn State's a pretender every year, but they're a top 15 team in the country. Ohio State has those wins. That's why they're third. But their top win wasn't as impressive to me as Oregon or LSU like the other two teams. And then for the fourth spot, you've got Georgia and Michigan who are both undefeated and who are going to be the playoff committee's top two teams. But Michigan's played nobody and beaten nobody. Georgia's played nobody and beaten nobody. So let those two programs scrap it out for who's the fourth team in the playoff. And how refreshing is it, Lawrence, that this is the last year of the four-team playoff. I believe the committee's going to come out and have... They're going to have Georgia 1, Michigan 2, Florida State 3... And maybe Oklahoma four. Who's going to be four? It's not going to be Washington. So I think, oh, it's going to be two. It's going to be two Big Ten schools. Sorry. So it's going to be, it's going to be Georgia one. It's going to be Michigan two. It's going to be Ohio State three. And then it's going to be Florida State four, meaning the Pac-12 is out and the Big 12 is out. Ideally, you'll have you'll have Michigan and Ohio State knock each other off. The team that loses the Big Ten championship get them out, and you'll be able to have four clean conference champions with one left out. And it's probably going to be the Pac-12, like it always is, right? So it's probably going to be the winner of Ohio State, Michigan. It's going to be Georgia. It's going to be Florida State representing the ACC, and it's going to be either Oklahoma or Texas. Who gives a crap? The point is, this is the last year of the 14 playoff. And I don't care. Bring on the 12th team. All right, we got to hurry, Larry. What's next, buddy? I'm the one that got it done and did a great job. All right, we're fixing a handyman brought to you by our good friends at Bucks Ace Hardware. Check out Bucks Ace, three Southern Utah locations, including out to Hurkin. Dino Crossing and Santa Clara. And every week we fix something. Usually it's in sports, not tonight. Tonight we're fixing, Larry, Halloween. Halloween sucks. Here's how we fix it. Number one, and I'm talking to the moms. The first thing we have to do is make Halloween Halloween again. Not the week before, every day, having some Halloween-themed thing at your school, at your church, at your neighborhood, at your Boy Scout troop, uh, some sort of family engagement where the kids got to wear their costumes. No, the kids should wear their costumes one day a year, and that's on October 31st. I don't want an October 27th, you know, church party where they wear their costumes, any of that stuff. October 31st is Halloween. When you spread it out over the whole month of October, you dilute the power of the holiday. So that's number one. Thank you, Larry. Number two, get rid of the switch witch nonsense. This is ridiculous. The fact that these moms are trying to be heroes, super Instagram moms, are stealing your children's hard-earned candy and switching it with apples and peaches is nonsense. Throw out the switch, which bring back the greatness of Halloween. That's the second thing I would do to fix Halloween. 
third thing, and this is tough. This is, you know, this is a hot take, Larry. Trunk or treats are lame. Get rid of trunk or treats. Go back to the guy. I know this is old man screaming a cloud. I know it's safe and the moms feel comfortable and it's at a parking lot and they get to see everything. What made Halloween great was getting out, getting away from mommy, going down the street, going to the rich neighborhoods across town and fishing for the great full-size, king-size Twix, Snickers, Poland Peels, string things, all of those great trick-or-treat rewards, but you had to leave. That was the point. It was a rite of passage. You got your pillowcase. You left the flock. You left your family. You went with a few buddies with a pillowcase, and we've subverted that with all of these trunk-or-treats. Thank you, Lawrence. That's how you fix Halloween. Take some of the power out of the mom's hand, Lawrence, and unleash what used to be a great holiday, and now it sucks. All right. Last one. What do you got? A no-hitter. If you have a sombrero, throw it to the sky. This day in sports. On this day in 1994, October 31st, uh, 1994, American tennis star Venus Williams made her professional debut as a 14-year-old with a 6-3, 6-4 win over former NCAA champion and world number 58, Sean Stafford, in the Bank of the West Classic in Oakland, California. Amazing. I have still yet to see, because I'm boycotting Will Smith movies, I've still yet to see... The tennis movie with Will Smith in it. What is it called, Larry? I haven't seen it yet. I need to because I've been told it's excellent. So congratulations on this day in sports to Venus Williams. 1994, almost 30 years ago to the day, as a 14-year-old, she wins the match. All right, Larry, great job. Good job, Jeremy. Quick break. Back with more on the Andy Thompson Show right after this. Listening to The Andy Thompson Show on ESPN 97.7.